Alright, so today I'm going to switch gears a little bit and get into a book by Mary Beard, Her Women and Power, a manifesto. So there has been a glaring absence of a lot of feminist stuff here, let alone race stuff and trans stuff and all that, because I'm a noob. Um, But, you know, we'll go from here. Uh, So Mary Beard, for those who don't know, She's kind of a badass. She she was one of the first, well, there were, it's hard to say, but she's had uh, a pretty significant presence on Twitter, and you can follow her at uh, W Mary Beard, or at W Mary Beard, um, and she's, you know, it's the troll killer. She doesn't have, you know, she doesn't put up with a lot of crap, uh, and a little bit more on her actually. So without, you know, without going into too much detail, because I don't know all that much, uh, she's um, a classicist, the University of Cambridge, I believe. I hope I didn't just lie to everyone. I believe it's the University of Cambridge. Uh, Yes. Um, And this work, uh, dealing specifically with women, of course, and the plight of women throughout history, begins certainly with a kind of classics perspective and works from you know, the time of the ancient Greeks, to uh, today. Now, one of the things that's kind of difficult to wrap your head around, or at least my head around when reading this, is that it does come off uh, initially, at least I understood it like this, as a very uh, liberal feminist project. Hence, you know, at least that's what I gleaned from the title, Women in Power. So for those that aren't perhaps fully aware, or are aware, but you know, understand that liberal feminism, you know, doesn't necessarily have one face, and we can get on the same kind of plane here. Uh, Liberal feminism is the idea that, um, I guess, adding women and stirring into, like, corporate positions or into high political office or something like that is the means by which women gain equality, where all that does is simply perpetuate the same systems of oppression and exclusion that put women in uh, position of subordination in the first place. Now, it also has a very close link to the kind of um, neoliberal or capitalist doctrine that if you you know if you don't work hard enough, it's your own fault, and all all that women need to do is work really hard, and they can make it, and then that's that'll solve all the problems. Of course, liberal feminism avoids uh, systemic barriers, suggesting that the only thing that should be taken into account when it comes to the oppression of women is, you know, women's lack of willingness or very overt examples of sexism, like, you know, sexual discrimination in the workplace, like how it's depicted on, um, you know, series like Mad Men or or something like that. Uh, So liberal feminism isn't always the most appreciated, certainly not among, uh, within feminist uh, circles. Um, With that being said, Mary Beard's book, despite the title, is much more complicated than that. So while there are moments when it seems to certainly uh, dip into a kind of liberal feminist doctrine that would be kind of problematic and and would be something we'd have to take, um, kind of criticize a little bit, it redeems itself by by considering all these other things. So the book begins with uh, kind of meditating on a moment that occurs in the Odyssey. When Telemachus tells his mom... Penelope to like go 
go back upstairs, right? To, to stop being annoying. Pretty much as Mary Beard reads this, Telemach is telling uh, his mom to shut up. So Mary Beard believes this to be, and, you know, it's hard to say if this is true, but, you know, we'll take it as it is here. Uh, Mary Beard believes this to be the first instance that um, a man tells a woman to shut up, at least recorded instance that a man tells a woman to shut up. Now, this kind of set the stage for how women would be treated throughout the course of history, at least in literature and uh, certainly in public and political spheres, that Mary Beard kind of sees as the genesis or sees this moment as the kind of genesis of that, be it a conceptual one. So women's speech, Beard argues, is not something that has been appreciated. In fact, women's speech has been kind of relegated to a position of subordination or or subservience to men, where it only fulfills a kind of um, gossiping function, where it's you're better to be seen than not heard, or if you're talking as a woman, we expect that you're going to be talking about, you know, gossipy stuff, you know, how that's even today, how that's very much um, understood about what, you know, women talk about. Like that's clearly something to do with the way that we conceptualize speech, or at least the speech of women. So as Mary Beard writes, we find repeated stress throughout ancient literature on the authority of the deep male voice in contrast to the female. As one ancient scientific treatise explicitly put it, a low-pitched voice indicated manly outrage, or sorry, manly courage, a high-pitched voice, female cowardice. So this trend certainly has continued on to today, where, you know, even in popular film and, you know, uh, cinema or whatever, whatever term you want to use, um, there is, there can be observed a stark difference between the way men and women speak. Who is most often in a position of authority? Who is most often speaking in a way that takes command of various situations? And of course, you could say, oh, well, there's X, Y, and Z examples. Sure, there are exceptions to every rule. But with that being said, for the most part, it is, women are depicted in such a way as to render them subordinate to men and to the command and authority of men. So what Mary Beard doesn't like really uh, fully develop, because it is a very short book, and she had no reason to necessarily do this, but to think about the way that um, uh, media, and and with the quote I just read, considering the way in which the uh, literature art of the time, back in the ancient time, or a kind of broad term, um, would have an effect on the public generally. So while it would be difficult to say how many people, like in the general public, had access to these kinds of uh, media or these kinds of forms of entertainment or art or literature, uh, today there's certainly something to be said about the way that possibly media f- through film or television or, or you know music or whatever uh, can be disseminated to the people and how that may have a very clear effect on people. So if we were to say that there is a clear effect between what people consume and the way that they act, or at least their perceptions of the world, it would hold that people would then trans- or transpose what they see onto the television, or they would kind of emulate those characteristics so that they would, you know, realize them in their own in their own lives. Now, this is something, and it's kind of like a thought experiment um, for those that are actually listening to this, um, and it's something that I started to do a while ago, quite quite a while ago, is to really look at uh, kind of group dynamics 
uh, group dynamics where there's uh, a group of people, both you know men and women, or or those who identify as men and women, uh, and how who who speaks the most, uh, who speaks the most, and who speaks with the most authority. Now there's no there's obviously no reason for this. Um, women have held office for ever, from you know Elizabeth to Ditto to Cleopatra, like there, there's no like, there's no reason for uh, you know women just kind of naturally or innately occupying these kinds of positions, which is exactly the argument that Beard is trying to make. But with that being said, there are still a number of people today that think that such things are natural, that such things are just part of biology or anything like that. Of course, not accounting for the ways in which things change, you know, bet- between cultures or even in our own culture where there are certain women that identify a certain way that take up more space than other women <laughs> or what I will hesitate I, I will say um, I will say carefully those you know quote unquote biologically women do not act consistently in any way so does that mean that the 45% of women that, you know, would take up a little bit more space than other women yet still be subordinate to men, are they simply exceptions to a rule? And it seems like that's a very big number, a very big percentage that would uh, be an exception. It seems like at that point we'd have to rethink the rule, but here I go off on tangents. So in the classical world, Mary Beard tells us that women, as I was mentioning earlier with gossip or whatever, women were able to speak in a few different capacities. So they were allowed to speak uh, as victims and as martyrs, usually to preface their own death. So it is in that, in those moments that they were able to um, demonstrate some degree of autonomy or some degree of, well, autonomy through speech. Yet, viewing this from the outside, we can certainly see that that is not an autonomy in and of and for itself, but rather it's a kind of autonomy for you know, the giving over of oneself to someone else. It's the ability to actively say that you are giving yourself up, which, you know, we could take with a grain of salt as to whether or not that really constitutes a kind of emancipation or a demonstration of a kind of agentic character. And then there's another instance as well, where she said that says that occasionally women could legitimately rise up to speak to defend their homes, their children, their husbands, or the interests of other women. <laughs> Which, of course, I think the same kind of analysis could apply. It's not in and of or for itself. I guess it is in and of itself, but it's not for itself. Um, rather, it is for something else. Which is a burden that is most often placed on uh, women to care for other people. And, of course, the way that certain um, certain people internet people like to defend that is by saying, oh, it's natural that women, you know, are more, well, I guess, what would be the psych- psychological term? Uh, they're they are more uh, caregiving or they, frig, I don't remember the actual term, but it's that the idea that women, because they, you know, uh, care for children or they grow children inside of them are therefore more apt to care about, you know, people and things. They're a lot more uh, sociable or anything like that. But with that being said, they still, they, they, they aren't given the highest positions in jobs that demand that. Funny, funny enough. Uh, so 
What we have then are a series of instances that she presents, well, series two instances, where women were allowed to talk, yet it wasn't an ability to talk that could signal um, a degree of subjectivity or degree of agency that would extend beyond the parameters of a kind of patriarchal structuring of how women can act or be in the world. And this was certainly um, certainly apparent when it came to political discussion, right? Where, of course, we could think of the ancient Greeks, men were the only ones, well, men, male citizens, uh, were the only ones that were able to actually engage in any kind of political dialogue or political speech in the public sphere. So in that zone that was outside of the home, where the man could exert a degree of autonomy or subjectivity in order to have a kind of uh, demonstrate their own agency within a, a public sphere that could then have effects on the way that society was organized or anything like that. And embedded within that very possibility is the preclusion or the exclusion of, you know, any kind of minority figures, be it women or otherwise, who wouldn't get a say in how society was organized. So, of course, then, there w the, the people would uh, build up or promote a system that was in their best interest. Because, of course, if you don't regard certain people as being human, of certain people as having any kind of agency or anything like that, then why do you feel like any kind of public institution or any kind of institution should be in their favor? So, Deriving from this inability to speak, or this, perhaps inability isn't the right word, this kind of um, denial of the ability to speak, has effects that range much further than just being able to speak. It then translates into an inability to, to shape the world around them in a way that could be meaningful for them. So as I mentioned earlier in the domain of kind of gossip, women, of course, could speak. But their speech was simply about, you know, other women or other kind of domestic issues that wouldn't have effects on, you know, society at large, per se. No, well, difficult, of course. It can still have effects, but I would say not to the degree that men's voices could in the, um, in the political sphere that they would construct. So locating these instances in a, in a kind of uh, historical or a Greek temporality, or, a Greek, or the Greeks, Greek moment, um, Mary Beard wants to dissuade the possibility of us considering this to be a kind of um, a natural thing, right? Because someone could certainly hear this and be like, well, if, it's, if it happened, you know, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, in a, you know, very different kind of cultural societal framework, doesn't that in some way point to the possibility that this could be a natural phenomenon? Mary Beard wants to say absolutely not. So what she says is that these attitudes, assumptions, and prejudices are hard are, are hardwired into us, not into our brains. There is no neurological reason for us to hear low-pitched voices as more authoritative than high-pitched ones, but into our culture, our language, and millennia of our history. So this is her considering the way in which culture, the arts, or anything like that can have an effect on the way that people um, understand the world and people come to um, engage with the world. Sorry, those noises are my cat doing weird things. Um, so yeah, it is in that way that by setting the stage or by men 
you know, first first having the uh, chance to speak, set the parameters of what constitutes speech, how that speech can be perceived, and, you know, who is allowed to speak. So then it is very easy that we would misconstrue this as being a biological thing, because bio biology has been used historically as a means of uh, justifying control, justifying, you know, eugenics, justifying, um, uh, I get, yeah, controls fine, or power over others or control over others that do not fit within that paradigm. And of course, one excellent analysis of this is in uh, Simone de Beauvoir's text. Would you stop? You weirdo. Um, when she considers uh, brain size between between men and women, because that was a big thing, uh, it still is in some, with some people, um, brain size somehow affects intelligence. And she completely does away with that because her thesis almost is pretty much suggesting well if brain size affects the intelligence of people then you know taller people would be smarter than shorter people and and but we don't have these kinds of uh, distinctions and given the relative size of what she does between men and women uh, given the relative size between men and women Women's brains are they're proportional in the exact same way to men's brains. So sh that's like, why is it that we discriminate based on gender? And why is it that we not discriminate based on height or based on size or, or uh, anything like that? Which is it seems like all you'd need to say to dissuade any possible kind of, you know, um, sexist thing or, or among uh or race as well makes my head spin yeah okay tangent time is done so as i mentioned at the beginning mary beard has a pretty big internet presence she has like over two hundred thousand followers on twitter like two hundred and fifteen thousand followers on twitter um and she has you know uh, <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly gotten to many disputes online with trolling trolls and other kind of sexist figures not to say all trolls are, are sexist trolls serve some other functions as well to be really generous um but she locates the kind of greek thing or what was going on back then to today with the uh with the internet where she says that some of these same issues of voice and gender are at play in the questions of internet trolls and the hostility from abuse to death threats that get transmitted online. We have to be careful about generalizing too confidently about the nastier sides of the internet. They appear in many different forms. It's not quite the same on Twitter, for example, as it is under the line in a newspaper comment section. And criminal death threats are a different kettle of fish from merely unpleasant sexist abuse. Is, doesn't it make your head spin like this is what women go through? It's, it's like, maybe there's a problem. And she gives an example or gives examples of all the terrible things that have been said and, you know, states that I think very correctly that it is uh, men are the perpetrators of these things by far, which people tend to ignore. They're like, well, women are catty and they bicker and they're mean to each other. It's like, do you just have blinders on as to how, like, Men speak to one another and to women on, like, the internet or anywhere else. But that's, that's me. 
So all these tactics mobilized by internet trolls to, you know, call Mary Beard or other women online or other um, other minorities online, uh, kind of all these terrible things, she says that that is an extension of the same kind of logic that permeated in the time of the Greeks so that we could see then where, you know, Telemach is telling his mother, Penelope, to shut up and go upstairs. Mary Beard says that this is pretty much the exact same thing. So she says, in its crude, aggressive way, this is about keeping or getting women out of man's talk. It is hard not to see some faint connection between these mad Twitter outbursts, most of them are just that, and the men in the House of Commons heckling women MPs so loudly that you simply cannot hear what they're saying. So it is no coincidence then that women, in order to be taken seriously in these spheres, have to take on a kind of, and it's extremely problematic to say, but a kind of male persona. At least that's how Mary Beard describes it here, uh, where they have to put on a lower voice, they have to speak in more of a monotone, they cannot raise their voice lest they be considered, you know, shrewd and, you know, um, um, whatever other words are used to describe women with, with high-pitched voices, childish or, or unqualified or something, where just consider, you know, the current president of the United States, like, if anybody else, if a woman was acting that same way, you know, their their people would their heads would explode, right? Women aren't allowed to be anything other than perfect in many ways to get, you know, to the position they're in. And that is where a kind of Mary Beard's kind of liberal feminism comes out, which isn't all that terrible per se, but still, she says that it is required for women to take on a certain male role in order to be accepted in those uh, spaces. Or what she calls a kind of androgene route. What she says is that those who do manage successfully to get their voices across very often adopt some version of the androgene route, like Mesa in the form of, or Elizabeth at Tilbury, cons consciously apping aspects of male rhetoric. That was what Margaret Thatcher did when she took voice training specifically to lower her voice, to add the tone of authority that her advisors thought her high pitch lacked. If that worked, it is perhaps churlish to knock it. And then what she says quite, you know, I think correctly, is that putting it bluntly, having women pretend to be men may be a quick fix, but it doesn't get to the heart of the problem. So this is how, this is her kind of criticism of liberal feminism. It doesn't take on or address the systemic issues that require women to take on uh, these kinds of persona in order to be taken seriously. Now, at the back of all this, at least how when I was reading this book, so I was thinking about something kind of um, that was it's kind of rubbing me the wrong way. I was asking, why is it that speech is the only way for people to engage kind of politically? And of course, I was thinking about uh, Spivak, and you know Spivak's, uh, for, well, for those who don't know, her kind of famous uh, essay there, Can the Subaltern Speak, um, or book, uh, Can the Subaltern Speak, where she says that, you know, finally, no, the subaltern, the, the colonized subject cannot really speak without having their voice filtered or mediated through the colonial gaze or kind of the colonial authority, to where I think that this, some of that is present here. To which I was kind of wondering, why is it that we hold speech or place speech on a kind of pedestal that 
is the be-all, end-all of the ability of someone to engage um, politically or to, or to, or to have uh, authority. And Mary Beard addresses it at one point, um, not as directly as she could have, but she does it in an interesting way. So she says that, um, find it right here. So she thinks back to Ovid, who, who may have emphatically silenced his women in their transformation or mutilation, but he also suggested that communication could transcend the human voice and that women were not that easily silenced. Philomela lost her tongue, but she still managed to denounce her rapist by weaving the story into a tapestry, which is why Shakespeare's Lavinia has her hands as well as her tongue removed. So the smartest ancient rhetorical theorists were prepared to acknowledge that the best male techniques of oratorical percussion or persuasion were uncomfortably close to the techniques, as they saw it, of female seduction. Was oratory then really so safely masculine, they worried. So that that really resonated with me because I think that uh, Beard did a really good job at suggesting that it's not as though women need to speak in order to have a kind of authority, where taking on more of um, not a top-down approach to power, but thinking about the way that power or authority kind of works, can work in many different ways in many different directions, um, how women can exert a degree of autonomy or subjectivity or authority through other means. And with that being said, of course, there is still a problem with the way that speech is foreclosed to women, which is something to absolutely address. But with that being said, we cannot lose sight of the fact that power or authority may exert itself in other forms. So another example that she gives uh, of the ability to engage in authority in another way is once again with Margaret Thatcher, who, you know, certainly was not left of the political spectrum. So it's, you know, using her as an example is perhaps not the best, and we shouldn't really be applauding her. But, we, you know, it's who we have. So she says, or Beard says, one thing that many of these women share is a capacity to turn the symbols that usually disempower women to their own advantage. Margaret Thatcher seems to have done that with her handbag so that eventually the most stereotypically female accessory became a verb of political power, as in, to handbag. And then Beard gives an account of something that she had done, where she says that she bought a pair of blue tights, especially for, uh, for a job interview. So she says that it wasn't my usual fashion choice, but the logic was satisfying. If your interviewers are going to be thinking that I'm a right blue stocking, let me just show you that I know that's what you're thinking and that I got there first. So this idea is, you know, this idea of turning uh, kind of the oppressive gaze back on itself by using the same techniques is a really complicated idea. And it's one that uh, Beard doesn't uh, sift out all that much, not to say she had to, uh, nor do I expect her to you know, quote a gamut of, you know, dead white men that have spoken about these kinds of things. Um, but I think she stumbles upon something really interesting here, especially how it relates to uh, some post-colonial, and I know post-colonial and, and feminist thought aren't the same thing, but some kind of post-colonial discussions, especially those of uh, Homi Baba, who considers the possibility that hybridity or turning the kind of colonial gaze back on itself by mirroring or by mimicking that gaze 
uh, is a form of um, sub sub subservience or sub sub subversiveness or a kind of form of insurgency. And men being kind of dumb, especially in the way that uh, you describe these internet trolls, do not understand that power can work in very many different ways. And just by silencing women, it, it does not work. I'm not trying to give a play-by-play -play of how to you know, oppress women, um, but the ability to challenge power is a lot more multifaceted than the maintenance of power, right? So it's very difficult to be a king today. Now I say that um, perhaps with hesitation because it seems as though we're seeing that all over the world, really. People like kings. People like to give over their freedoms to a uh, kind of powerful vessel that can decide and think for them. It's the world we live in. So in order to kind of stop women from possibly exerting these um, kind of insurgent possibilities or resistance to power. There are a number of examples throughout history that have shown the, you know, killing of women, possibly for those very reasons. So Beard says there are many, uh, there are many ancient variations on Medusa's story. It's just one example. One famous version has her as a beautiful woman raped by Poseidon in a temple of Athena, who promptly transformed her as punishment for her sacrilege punishment to her note into a monstrous creature with a deadly capacity to turn to stone anyone who looked at her face it later became the task of the hero perseus to kill this woman and he cut her head off using this his shiny shield as a mirror so as to avoid having to look directly at her at first he used the head of a as a weapon since even in death it retained the cat capacity to petrify he then presented it to athena who displayed it on her own armor one message being, take care not to look too directly at the goddess. So this placing the, uh, or Athena taking the head of Medusa and placing it on her is not so simple as saying that, you know, this is a woman taking over uh, or taking upon herself a degree of power. Because Beard says that it was one of the most potent ancient symbols of male mastery over the destructive dangers that the very possibility of female power represented. Because he was the one that essentially um, foreclosed Athena as a destructive figure by, you know, putting up the signal that if you look at her, you're gonna you're gonna get fucked up. Like there's <laughs> this isn't gonna go well for you. Um, kind of annihilating that possibility. I can remember no part in uh, the Iliad when someone, you know, puts up a warning about the dangers of um, of um, what the hell is his name, whiny crying little Achilles, but yeah, I guess there are moments, but not, not as overt, obviously, that foreclose the possibility of people engaging in a kind of um, debacle with them, as we saw with Hector getting owned. So to, there are still some kind of problematic things that Mary Beard brings up, and it, it asks us to, or it demands that we question what exactly Mary Beard sees as an endpoint to this problem. So she says that it is happily the case that there are now more women in what we would all probably agree are powerful positions than there were 10, let alone 50 years ago. Whether that is politicians, counselors, police commissioners, managers, CEOs, judges, or whatever, it is still a clear minority, but there are more. To give just one figure, around 4% of UK MPs were women in the 1970s. 
around 30% are now. But my basic premise is that our mental cultural template for a powerful person remains resolutely male. If we close our eyes and try to conjure up the image of a president or to move into the knowledge economy, a professor, what most of us see is not a woman. And that is just as true, even if you are a woman professor. The cultural stereotype is so strong that, at the level of those close-your-eyes fantasies, it is still hard for me to imagine me or someone like me in my role. Okay, so, of course that's a problem. I, I hope no one would deny that that's a problem, that women occupy few of these roles relative to men. But I don't find she's as careful as she could be at kind of qualifying that analysis by saying that, okay, maybe it is the existence of these kind of powerful roles. It is the existence of their, um, or it is the faith in them as being positions of power that can then exert control over others that is part and parcel of that very system that operates by exclusion, that operates by mandating specific populations or anything like that. So, of course, I want to, you know, be a little self-reflexive here and to say that, you know, to some extent, who the hell am I to say? Like, I go up to some women and like, hey, no, you, you don't actually want that because that it's not going to help you. That's just going to continue a system of oppression after men have been enjoying the benefits of these kinds of positions for throughout the course of, you know, Western civilization <laughs> or perhaps history. Um, so it, it, it's difficult to say like, oh, just, you know, don't do this or don't do that because, you know, as men, me, man, figured out what is right and what is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. It's going to be bad for you in the end. Like, who am I to say that? And that's the kind of post-structuralist in me coming out, or post-modernist in me coming out, screwing up any political possibility. So that's that's her book for the most part. It's it's a short read. It's like a hundred pages, maybe even less. No, it's a hundred and six pages or something. Um, and the pages are really short, and there's a bunch of pictures and stuff. I I'd recommend people read it. It's a nice little book to have. Um, it's not, got a nice little cover, you know, that's how I judge a book by its cover. And yeah, uh, some other kind of house cleaning, huh, house cleaning, um, things. I'm hoping that I'll be doing these every Tuesday, putting it up, probably start Nietzsche next week. But for now, for those that listened, if you have any beef with me, I'm sure that some people will, or I hope that some people will, uh, then you'll leave it because you know how. But for now, take care.